We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between outdoors, action sports and activism. In each show, I'll be meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We'll be discussing the issues they're involved with, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved and the rewards that follow. Now, my guest for this episode is Jack Harries. Jack is a filmmaker and environmental activist from London. He quickly came to prominence back in the day thanks to his wildly popular YouTube channel, Jack's Gap, which he started with his brother Finn, and which quickly amassed an impressive 4 million subscribers. Such an audience gave him quite a platform, as you might imagine, and quite a few opportunities, such as the chance to head to Greenland and take part in a documentary about Glacial Retreat. It would prove to be a life-changing moment for Jack, who decided from that point to dedicate his life to raising awareness of climate change and attendant issues such as forced migration. Now, he's done so by making documentaries in environmentally compromised places like Bhutan and Kiribati. Through his work as an ambassador for organisations such as the WWF and latterly by his very visible involvement with the Extinction Rebellion group. If anyone fulfills the premise of this podcast about using their platform to create change, it's Jack. And having been one of his 1.5 million Instagram followers for a while, I've been pretty intrigued by his story, to be honest. So with a fortnight of London-based Extinction Rebellion action in full swing in the middle of October 2019, I headed up to London to meet him and find out more. So here's how it went down, me and Jack Harry's Enjoy. How you doing? I'm with Jack. How are you? I'm very good, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks, to be here. thanks for seeing me. You've obviously had a pretty, pretty busy week. Well, a few weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, a week and a half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel sort of exhausted, but also exhilarated by the last week and a half. Yeah. Well, you had some um, good news two days ago, right? Yeah. Uh, two days ago, I was found not guilty in uh, Westminster Magistrates Court. Which, do you know what it feels like? It feels a bit like getting your GCSE results. It's <laughs> sort of been like hanging over me for seven months. And have you had the dreams that you've uh, had an exam that you've not prepared for. Exactly, yeah, it's just this horrible tension and I sort of like, lots of people ask me how are you feeling about it and I and I really was like, oh yeah, I'll be fine, whatever the outcome, I've totally prepared myself for a criminal record or whatever and then when I, when I got the no guilty, I suddenly realised I think it had been really weighing on my shoulders a lot more than I thought it yeah. had. And so can you explain why you were arrested? Yeah, so um, that was uh, back in... February I think it was um, I took part in an action with Extinction Rebellion the environmental uh, protest group uh, outside the International Petroleum Conference in London uh, and it was an action in which nine of us uh, glued ourselves to the front doors of the hotel um, the idea was to communicate with the delegates coming in that day uh, the International Petroleum Conference was something I'd never heard of before but it, it runs uh, four days every year and on that particular day they were meeting to discuss new exploration opportunities in West Africa uh, so obviously knowing that we're in the midst of a climate crisis and that we also have enough oil reserves already to burn the planet up four times over yeah, seemed somewhat counterproductive Sure. and uh, so I was sort of moved just to go down and, and it just seemed insane that this could 
continue in 2019 unchecked yeah and so uh, it felt important to go down and, and and sort of be there just to voice my concerns and um I, I sort of just realized through that process that I'm, in a, I'm a terrible environmental activist. Right. I, I've never been arrested before. You know, this stuff is, is really new to me. And um, I was terrified, frankly, you know. So I, I, I didn't put enough glue on my hands. <laughs> and so I, no, here's how, this is how it went. Shall I explain you the yeah, action a little it. bit? Yeah, go for it, please okay, do. So this yeah. is how it happened. So we arrived at Green Park Station um, at around 8.30 in the morning. And I'd heard about the action the night before at an Extinction Rebellion press briefing um, where they sort of talked about the climate crisis and, and, and they were talking about the rebellion, which was the first major action they took in April. So this hadn't happened yet. Yeah. So you have to remember Extinction Rebellion is only still 11 months old yeah, at this point. Yeah, that's what in researching this conversation. It's already such a part of the conversation in the culture. It's, it's actually hard to believe it's not really a year old, is it? You know, I was almost like, oh, yeah, that movement that's been around for years. Right. And it is literally not even a year old. Yeah, yeah. it seems like this thing that has existed forever. And yeah. it's already sort of on Wikipedia as like, you know, one of the big social movements of the 21st century. And, sure. And, and everyone seems to know its name. But um, literally 11 months ago, it was it was founded. And I can talk more later about how that came to be. But this was one of our first actions in which we were sort of testing out uh, are people willing to be arrested for this cause? You know, how much are people willing to give to, to bring this issue to the to the public consciousness? And so I went down to this action and I think I thought on that morning that I'd probably just take a photograph and sort of like right. talk about the action and then just go back to my normal life. Um, I hadn't certainly hadn't set out to be arrested. I hadn't had any of the trainings that, that I know the other activists had had. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, if you don't mind me interrupting. Is that Go for it. was it was it a tactic? Yeah. So the, the idea behind Extinction Rebellion, one of the central ideas, is this idea of nonviolent civil resistance. Yeah. Um, which in which being arrested in which being arrested is, is a viable a tactic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the idea being um, that as, as long as you're willing to be arrested, then um, we're in a pretty great position for for negotiation and yeah. to sort of hold the government accountable and and um yeah so so it's it's but i think for a lot of people it's wrapping their head around this idea of arrest it is a scary thing yeah sure you know? well you know obviously um you're brought up to <laughs> it, it's a significant thing culturally right um, if you're law-abiding right you know it's a Absolutely. big it's a big step isn't it hugely um so so on that day you were not it wasn't like it was planned you were going to go there and like be like i'm going to get arrested and no I hadn't. It, so it unfolded as the day went yeah so it sort of we arrived at the hotel early in the morning and i i watched initially as these eight activists who called themselves the arrestables so they had very much committed to, to this act on that day and i watched as they each ran forward and glued themselves to the door right and and sort of paint a picture you know this is like in, in this group of eight people there was a 23 year old who'd recently graduated from cambridge there was a 73 year old retired uh, organic gardener there was a, a guy called yana who trained as a barrister and is now a buddhist i mean you know the widest range of people you can imagine sure for, for, for all intents and purposes ordinary everyday people who have sort of read the science and are just terrified yeah you know, these aren't professional activists for most of us it was our first time ever crossing the boundaries of the law and i watched as these people ran and glued themselves and i i don't know there was just this feeling of like I need to to act, you know, like right. sort of solidarity, admiration, sadness a little bit. I watched as the security guards uh, rushed over and and dealt with the situation terribly. They they sat on one of the activists as they tried to glue themselves to the door, 
and um, I just felt like if you know if, if, if I'm if I want to stand for this issue you know which, which I do then then I have to involve myself here and so I initially walked up to the main door and I just put my hand against it just placed it against it it was pathetic <laughs> you know I just thought well, what's the least I can do I'm just gonna put my hand against the glass and, right and everything calmed down the security assumed I guess that we were all stuck and they called the police and it was the uh, activist next to me Yanai who noticed that my hand wasn't actually stuck. Right. And he said, uh, he was like, hey, hey buddy, do you want some glue? And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, I don't, I don't know if I actually need the glue. And he's like, no, no, you, no one's got the main door, you know, because we were there to really try and get all the doors, um, you know, take some glue and go for it. And again, there was that feeling of like, this is my purpose. I've got to do this. Right. So uh, I took the glue and, and, I, and I went and I actually stuck myself to the door. Um, and yeah, and then, I, and then I realized I needed a wee. <laughs> and I was like, shit, I didn't think, can I swear on this? Oh, crap. I, yeah, I didn't, you can didn't, swear away. I didn't, didn't think about this one. And so then that became a whole predicament. And it's just sort of realizing how horribly unprepared I was for this. Right. And, you know, how amateur we all were, I suppose. Um, anyway, long story short, eventually my hand came off the door. Right. Uh, I think probably because my hand was sweating so much. So I was so sort of nervous. And uh, so then I had to pretend it was still stuck. And eventually um, the policeman who had, had arrived, PC Cambry, was the guy that was tasked with keeping an eye on me. He, he noticed my hand wasn't stuck. Right. Uh, I dropped my sign and I, without thinking, leant down to pick it up and used both my hands. And he just looked at me like, this is clearly your first time. This is your this. first uh, gluing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he uh, stepped forward and, and, and put the cuffs on my, on my wrists and, um, and then took me to West End Central Police Station and... Um, yeah and so then and then I had all those thoughts of like what what have I done this is this is really serious and you know so did, did that action take you personally by surprise if that doesn't sound like too strange a question mm. because obviously with your background there's there's been a, a building up to this involvement this moment if you like mm. you know you've documented it really clearly and the I, I hate to use the word journey but i'm going to use it you know like the the way that it's been a progression yeah yeah to, to your involvement massively in, um so and and you say that you'd not planned it so did that level of commitment that you'd shown did that surprise you that you'd actually or did it make a kind of sense i think it made sense ultimately but at the time it felt scary and of course it's i suppose it's probably ridiculous to think that you can go and glue yourself to a door and and and, and not risk getting arrested you know it would have been naive to presume yeah. that that wouldn't have likely led to that happening so um but yeah, it was just a bit of a shock initially, I suppose. Um, but now I look back and, you know, I, um, I feel really proud of t having taken that action. Um, and I think that it has had an impact. You know, it's given me a platform to speak more about these issues. Um, and I think it's helped other people as well be able to take this decision. And it's a huge decision to be arrested. And it also has to be said as well that, you know, arrest affects uh, different de demographics differently right i have to acknowledge my own privilege in being able to take that risk of going and yeah getting sure arrested. That's, it, 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 it's, it's perhaps less risky than for the demographics totally let's and say it's, yeah. it's not something to glamorize yeah. uh, at all but for me i felt like i had that privilege and that felt like a responsibility for me to, to, to use it in, yeah. in a sense you know and um anyway so, so yeah that was the action we took and we were all charged initially with criminal damage and aggravated trespass the damage for the gluing and the, and the trespass for, for being now on that private property. And we've been in and out of courts for seven months now. And again, you know, it's, it's really impacted my life. I've lost jobs as a result of it. And I know many of the other defendants have too. Yeah. And, and so that's been a learning process as well. And two days ago, we had our final day in court uh, in which I was found not guilty, which was, as I said, a huge relief. And uh, five of us were found not guilty in total and four were found 
guilty of trespass. So, so what did, have they been sentenced? Yeah, they've been sentenced to for with a twelve month conditional discharge, which is like a temporary criminal record. It's a sort of a motivation to not reoffend within that time. So it's it's probably the least you can get without just being totally discharged. Did you expect? To be found not guilty? No, not at all. I absolutely went in that day expecting to be found guilty. Um, right. The judge hadn't been particularly uh, friendly or um, understanding. And it's just so infuriating when you're sat in that courtroom talking about the minutiae of, you know, whether your hand was actually stuck to this door. And you're trying to remind him of the much broader theme of climate change and the reasons we were there. And, you know, the, the, the ridiculousness for prosecuting those trying to stop what is absolutely criminal activity that was happening inside that room I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's certainly not recognized that legally now but you know i think one day we'll recognize that as as genocide uh that probably sounds really extreme but you know if you if you read the science that's what burning fossil fuels is doing um well that's the extinction rebellion versus um mainstream opinion debate in mm. microcosm isn't it basically mm. you know because you hear the arguments about wasting police time and you know like bringing the city to a halt and the, you know the, right. the, the mainstream view of like why this is actually um to be pilloried and should be punished and, yeah. and then obviously the the view that you're putting forth which is is actually essential and is needed to give give this debate the platform that it needs right totally yeah there's two sort of central criticisms of extinction rebellion one is this one of hypocrisy yeah so, which um, you get asked about a lot yeah and which we should discuss because it is interesting yeah it's a really interesting one and it's yeah. a really important thing to discuss i think yeah. you know any uh piers morgan for example is really keen to point out that any protest around the streets is is a hypocrite because they yeah, have television it's, or... it's the same argument though isn't it like logical fallacy of like you too basically you know like it's and you know george monbiot has been talking about it all week hasn't he on on twitter for example yeah. like and every person I've ever interviewed on this show um, and probably will ever interview, you know, it comes up because people grapple with it, don't they? And, and yeah, you know, like you've obviously, like I say, you've been asked it a lot. Like it, it is the, the, basically the, the main tool, isn't it? That the establishment, if you like, throws back in the face of this kind of um, position, let's say. Totally. And I think it's just another form of denialism. It's very easy to sort of say, well, you're a hypocrite, so why should we listen to you? Um, and it just seems like a totally irrelevant argument to me. If, if you have to be a perfect environmentalist to have this conversation, then no one's going to have this conversation. I think that's why we've stalled on this issue for 30 years so far. And for me, you know, that's almost the most hypocritical thing for someone like Piers Morgan to say, oh, I recognise there's an emergency, I recognise yeah. there's a climate crisis, but I'm not going to talk about it because yeah. I've what, got a TV or something. I mean, well, it's Julie Hartley Brewer on Question Time last week, same shit, you know, basically like, no, I believe the science, right. but I don't, yeah, I, I but, but what I, why I don't it's it's the approach it's the right you know right. it's the fact that they're all hip, they're in mcdonald's they're this that and the right, other right, right. but it doesn't actually have any impact on the argument does it no uh, absolutely not and 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 yeah, of course we all need to look at our own individual actions and that's that's something that we all need to work on but we also need system change you know it's, it's impossible to exist within the system we have and be a sort of perfect environmentalist and, and, and that's the very crux of the problem so um how uh, do you reconcile it personally and like, again i know you've been asked this very frequently but you mean um, what do i do in my personal life yeah or? reconcile the 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 contradiction hypocrisy the the charge that is that is thrown against people like yourself that are you know that you're a hypocrite basically right i mean it's just something i've sort of come to get used to i suppose you know i've made changes in my own life i have a plant-based diet i have done five years i've massively reduced flying and sort of working to totally cut that out of my life um but 
it just it doesn't affect me I, I, there's no I'm not going to not have this conversation because yeah. I'm a hypocrite I mean it's it, I think the best thing is just acknowledge it like I'm a hypocrite of course I'm absolutely a hypocrite we are all hypocrites we're all complicit within this system well I liked Monbiot's thing where he basically said there's two types of people in the world as hypocrites and cynics and I'd rather be a hypocrite right basically. right exactly yeah yeah we're, yeah I think we just have to move I hope there's something we move past you know this sort of finger pointing and and blame I think um, I think we will and it's almost why I bring it up because I think and it's the reason why I ask people every episode because I think the more that people get used to hearing that that argument is basically bullshit mm. and it can be ignored because mm. also it's a shaming argument isn't it mm. you know it's an argument to make people to, to sort of play on people's sense of shame to stop them from taking action so the mm. more you can people like yourself can just say yeah whatever i'm going to ignore that right the more the, the more quickly that will be debunked i think really it, it just sort of feels like not relevant to me because what i see is the purpose of extinction rebellion is we're, we're elevating a message right yeah and, and that message is what is what we're being told by scientists what we're, what we're reading from scientists right so to me it's sort of like going to the doctor and your doctor saying you've got pancreatic cancer and you've got a few months to live and it's like going a, oh, that's really inconvenient. And, and B, well, also, haven't you smoked cigarettes and drunk alcohol? It's like, well, yeah, but like, I'm just giving you this message, yeah. you know, and it doesn't change the message. And, and that's how analogy. I see it. Like, yes, I'm a hypocrite, but it doesn't change the fact that we have this devastating prognosis from scientists yeah. and we need to be talking about this. Yeah. And we need to be accepting our own hypocrisy and we need to be moving past that and, and collectively understanding how we're going to unite behind this science. So you mentioned two charges against extinction rebellion the first one being the hypocrisy so how would you characterize the second so hypocrisy and then um just this idea that it's sort of inconvening yeah. people's lives in the immediate sense um the idea that people can't get to hospital or you know um, clog up the courts right clog up the courts yeah, and things all yeah. those or, or that taking away valuable police time from from life crime and things and these are the things i've sort of been accused of like live on the news and things and you know, I understand all those concerns that they're, they're certainly valid. You know, I think the first point to make is that it goes without saying none of the Extinction Rebellion people want to be out in the streets doing this. You know, I, I had an entire plan for my life that didn't involve getting arrested and, and being an activist. And we can say the same for all the kids that are out every Friday. You know, that, that like these kids are giving up their education to because they're, they, they're worried they literally won't have a future. You yeah. Know? They don't want to be doing this. And so I think that's the first thing to say. And then and then the other, you know, is like to use another analogy. And I think analogies are really helpful when we talk about this thing. You know, the way I think about Extinction Rebellion is like a fire alarm that's going off in a house, you know. It's loud, it's inconvenient. We'll probably have to stop what we're doing and go yeah. stand outside in the cold. It might make you get you get make you sick or whatever, you know. But it's it's necessary to save your life. And so it's this sort of temporary inconvenience that, that hope that is protecting a much greater good. And and I think that's how we have to see Extinction Rebellion. And I think if you haven't read the science, if you don't understand the severity of the crisis, it does seem over the top and it does seem uh, annoying and frustrating. Um, but you have to look at the much broader context of the issue i think yeah because i think there's definitely a fairly willful head in the sand totally approach isn't there which is to be honest ideological isn't it really you know mm. in, in terms of like the way that the media portrays it and the way that it is dismissed as like the kind of uh you, you know like the greta thunberg thing and it's like oh she's just scaring people and it's right. like panic mongering and yeah. you know like all that kind of stuff it that isn't again that's not actually an argument that's not actually like a um grappling with the with the, the facts on offer or the argument it's basically another almost like kind of diversionary totally ta well, tactic isn't it something that's really fascinating i always think with this conversation is you look at what is it the five stages of 
grief. Yeah. And I can't remember off the top of my head what they are, but no, I know what you mean. Yeah. I think one of the first one is denial. denial. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then rage is in there. Yeah, yeah. Bargaining is one. Yeah. Uh, and then acceptance is, is, the final is, is one. a final one. Yeah. And so, and you really see this play out. I've been through it myself. You know, when I first read this stuff and I first went to Greenland, I saw it was happening. I was like, this is not going to affect our life. Surely, you know, there's the, my denial. And then it's like, well, okay, well, we've got like 20 years to figure this out, right? There's your bargaining. And we see this play out in the news. And so, when I see people like Piers Morgan and, uh, and characters like that, I just, I don't think it's surprising. I think it's just unfortunately part of the process. Yeah. You know? Well, that's what I was going to ask you actually in relation to where Extinction Rebellion is at now. Because obviously the significant thing that's happened this week is that the, it's been banned across London mm. and the police have invoked fairly scary, Draconian. arbitrary <laughs> powers, really. Yeah. You know, um, and, ca- you know, like what you could consider und- undemocratic actions absolutely but do you feel that that escalation is also necessary is that is that almost like expected yes and i think if you speak to some of the people inside extinction rebellion who are in charge of the the tactics um the young guy called joel who's sort of been you know one of the main organizers of the last rebellion he'll say that's absolutely part of the 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 tactics and and i and i i see it working you know as the police try to combat the this this disruption they get more and more sort of authoritarian and then people turn against them you think well that's this isn't a democracy rightly so yeah so then people start to side more with extinction rebellion um and i think that's all planned into the to, to, to the to the tactics um you know it it I have a lot of respect for for the police personally in the way that I've seen them handle the streets. And I think that has to be recognized. But um, I've also seen some really horrible sort of miscarriages of justice. And, you know, I saw a man get his finger broken on the first day of the rebellion last week. And um, so, uh, yeah, they, they definitely need to sort of check themselves in this process of like of handling it. And I think as, as we see it escalate and they take more and more sort of draconian rule, that people will side more and more with Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, yeah, well, there are, precedents aren't they in terms of aren't there in terms of movements you know are extinction rebellion taking any previous non-violent movements as, as a kind of blueprint you know or a model yeah absolutely so i suppose on this note just talk a little bit about how extinction rebellion came to be so um it was founded by a man called roger hallam uh and i i met roger a year and a half ago um i was making a short film about uh air pollution in london and I read about this man called Roger who'd been shutting down roads for like five minutes at a time to protest air right. pollution. And I thought that's sort of interesting and making an interesting part of the film. And so I went and met Roger. And at the time he was doing a PhD in, uh, in, in civil resistance at, at King's College London. He was studying social movements and what makes them effective. Uh, and he was testing out some of his theories by going and blocking roads. And I, I, I went to one of these actions he put on and it was honestly, it was really tragic. It was like sort of four or five retirees stepping into the road in West London and just getting shouted at by drivers. And I sat Roger down in an interview and I said, what are you hoping to achieve with all this, Roger? And he said, um, oh, I, like I've, I've got this plan. I'm going to have thousands of people in the streets of London protesting climate change. And on the day I was like, oh, right, yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. that sounds... you got a long way to go, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep me updated on that one. Yeah. And, uh, and I sort of went off. And, and two months later, Roger, along with a few friends, uh, registered his organisation and he called it Extinction Rebellion. Right. And um, I sort of... I, I saw George Monbiot write about it, actually. And yeah. Then, and then I emailed Roger again and was like, Roger, I think we should... 
we should meet again and so right. I, so i've sort of witnessed the birth of it and um and it very much it was a product of studying uh, as you sort of touched on there uh, social movements of, of the past and, yeah and we look back at you know uh, at social movements gandhi parks king mandela you know civil resistance has been used time and time again um to to great effect and, and often as well what we forget is at the time these movements were incredibly controversial yeah of course you know these people were hated they were considered terrorists yeah they were pay, put in prison suffragettes would smash windows be taken to prison go on hunger strike and go yeah. back and smash the same windows and, and they had died the, and, and had, let's not forget had the full power of the establishment press against them as well right you know if you look back at for example you you make the point but anti-suffragette propaganda right or you know probably would be considered a strong word but it's really brutal totally it's it's, it's, re- it's actually horrifying when you think what the cause was right yeah horrendous but we look back now and we clearly see suffragettes well, as it's the, the old, heroes it's the old right side of history thing isn't right it? and so i you know i think in in the moments where um, you know, where I'm sort of being arrested and I feel, have I, you know, have I gone too far? Have I made a bad mistake? Or we're out in the streets and it feels heavy or you see this criticism online. I have to just remember that and, and hope that one day, we, you know, we will look back and, and understand the importance of this. And I think if we're not pissing people off to some degree, we're probably not doing enough. Yeah. Um, and you know, Gail Bradbrook, who's the other founder of Extinction Rebellion, um, often says you don't have to like the movement. You know, we're not we're not after everyone to love the movement. Um, we just it has to work. You know, people have to just come down. And there's a great statistic by a woman called Erica Chenoweth, who's an American political scientist, and she did a great talk about why civil resistance works. And in it, she said it takes 3.4% of a population to to tip the scales to create meaningful social change. And so if you look at the UK, there's just over 66 million people in the UK. That means we need 2 million people to, to put themselves forward and be counted. And that doesn't necessarily mean arrested. That just means out on the streets. Visible. Visible and yeah. being counted, which doesn't seem like a crazy amount of people to me. No. Um, and, so, and so that's what we need. We don't need everyone in the country to love Extinction Rebellion and think it's fantastic. That will never happen. But we need 2 million people to sort of get behind the cause. And I, and I think, honestly, I think we're sort of getting there. You know, it's amazing to see how the movement has grown in 11 months. Yeah. Well, we should talk about your own path to this. Definitely not going to use the word journey again. Because um, <laughs> you touched upon it earlier. Yeah. Because, you know, that, and again, you've documented it. You, you had a trip to Greenland through your work that was very sign- significant for you. Mm. So could you explain a little bit about, you know, how this, where this sort of germ came from for you of an idea and how you've ended up in this position? Yeah, my path, not journey. Yeah. Um, slash journey. Slash journey. Yeah. Uh, X Factor's so, got a lot to answer for. <laughs> yeah, this is my sob story. Um, <laughs> so we'll get, I'll, get, well, I'll put it, I'll overdo dub the kind of music. So some nice music. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, the yeah. R-tune R- music. <laughs> yeah. um, so it start, my, my journey's technically started uh, when I was 14. My mum was a climate activist. Actually, she ran a group called Climate Action Now. It's just like a local group. And um, she, you know, there was a time where there were lots of colourful characters coming around to our house making banners and things. And I actually remember one night where she was dressed as a suffragette on her way out to the Houses of Parliament. And she took my brother and I aside and she said, um, you know, boys, mummy may be arrested tonight, (laughs) but don't worry, I'll be home in time for breakfast. And so from a young age, I suppose this idea of like um, fighting for what you believe in and, and, and the environment was sort of drilled into my brother and I. I'm an identical twin, so... Um, we sort of grew up aware of these issues together but obviously at that age you know I was sort of being dragged to these protests and I just thought it was so boring yeah. you know 
And I think that's the other thing we're seeing change is, I don't know about you guys, when I was at school, like the environment was, was lame to be, to care about the environment. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't something cool at all. No, it's definitely um, a minority interest. Totally. And I think also the other thing that switched is, then it was, we saw it as the environment. Whereas now I think to care about climate change is to to care about the future of humanity. You know, it's a human issue, right? The planet's going to be fine. It's very issue based. I think previously when was, particularly when I was younger, it was the groups that had visibility were very one single issue focused. Yeah. You know, like I've covered surface against sewage, for example, a lot of this on this podcast and generally, and that's kind of what I knew about growing up as, you know, in being in surfing, snowboarding, skateboarding, but th- those with the visibility, like you say, the, the idea that it's actually a, um, a critical human story is quite new, I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think that's something we're only just beginning yeah. to understand. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that, that's the sort of big flipping switch. It's not about, it's not really even about single use plastics, though that's massively important or like picking up rubbish. It's about, yeah. do we want to have a future on this planet as, yeah. as humanity? So what changed it for you then? At what point did you start to... So I sort of, yeah, was brought up with that stuff and then um, promptly forgot about it throughout my teenage years, had other other things on my mind. And then um, I left school at 18, took a year off and um, I'd been watching a lot of YouTube uh, videos as a form of procrastination, I guess, throughout my A-levels. <laughs> and this was back in 2011 and I sort of like... You have to remember then, YouTube was a really different place and no one was making any money. It was like a lot of cats and dogs on skateboards. And But I sort of saw that there were people who had, were setting up channels and they were like, sort of like they were running their own shows from their bedroom. And to me, that just seemed so exciting. And so on the first day of my year off, I created a YouTube channel as just like a fun experiment of like, oh, you've got this bit of time and see what I can do, you know, with this and just as a creative project. And um, that became my sort of focus throughout my year off and, and, and um, sort of grew totally unexpectedly. Um, and uh, I, I left, I went to university in 20, uh, 2012 and I left a month later to do this thing full time. And, right. and it sort of grew to 100,000 subscribers, a million subscribers, two million subscribers and, and um, was totally overwhelming. But obviously at the time also really exciting. Just yeah, like sure. running this thing from our bedroom and offered my brother and I the creative freedom just to start to make films and talk about things we were passionate about and share them with an audience just to stop you there did the filmmaking was that it's difficult to probably separate the two considering you know you you were young when this started but Mm. was that an interest that you had as like you wanted to tell stories and and make films yeah I grew up in a sort of family of uh, filmmakers or storytellers to some degree so it was like always something that was around and yeah and my brother and I would just um, always got up to a lot of mischief making right. short films as kids and so it was, so it was just, always an outlet yeah it was always an outlet yeah, yeah. And, and probably a terrible idea to then start sharing that online you know I look back at a lot of that stuff and I cringe so much but um, it was oh, just that's, total that's, that's healthy youthful naivety yeah. I think you know and, and creative freedom um, you know, had no idea that they would gain an audience you know or anything it was yeah. just like a sort of creative outlet as you say but a major turning point was um, the WWF the World Wildlife fund um uh, approaching us and and they sort of saw we were making these films and they said how would you like to go to greenland and make a documentary about uh, glacial retreat and and at the time i knew nothing about what was happening in greenland really right but it seemed like this really exciting opportunity and and so we we went on this trip and we joined a science research trip to to uh, greenland and we spent a night we dropped off in the yak of southern glaciers the fastest retreating glacier in the world uh, and we, we went with uh, a scientist called Alan Hubbard and he was retrieving data from the Extreme Ice Survey, which is this group of cameras set up on the, the glacier, which is sort of photographing it every few hours. And it's how they monitor its change over a period of time. 
And um, long story short, you know, they were observing that these glaciers were just melting at an unprecedented rate and falling into the ocean beneath. Well, there's a shot in the film, isn't there, of like the Manhattan overlay right. where, you know, a that carbon event is, is, yeah, because I actually watched it again the other day and it is horrifying, really. It, it is. Uh, you know, you can casually throw that around. Like, mm. there's, a, there's an iceberg the size of Manhattan that's mm. just fallen off this glacier. Mm. But I imagine seeing that in up front is is fairly affecting yeah i think for me i think you know the biggest issue with climate change is that it's uh it's not very tangible no it's it's invisible especially not in our little right you live in a city you live in the uk yeah it happens in faraway places yeah and it's often complicated by graphs and numbers you know i think that's why i'd fail to ever grasp it but you know you put someone on a glacier and you stand there as you watch huge pieces of it fall into the ocean beneath yeah you get it it's like you feel it you see it you know and so for me it was like um it just all clicked into place and 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 i sort of was able to tangibly see how the planet was changing because of the increasing temperatures um and it was that it was that night literally i just was realized that this would be the most important issue of our of our lifetime and just decided that's what i wanted to commit myself to i had no idea how to do that but i just thought this is the story i want to tell and and i wanted to tell how it was affecting humans around the world as well you know because i think that's the important link to make you know is how how does that melting glacier affect me in my life why should i care frankly yeah. um and so since that day i've been fortunate with various ngos and stuff to travel to somaliland uh during a devastating drought to witness you know climate refugees traveling hundreds of miles for 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 clean water and food. I've traveled to Kiribati, which is a remote island nation in the South Pacific, which is one of the lowest lying countries in the world and is under threat from rising sea levels and the the very rising sea levels that's being caused by those melting glaciers as you start to put the pieces together. And I, you know, I literally watched as, as, as men and women rebuilt their sea walls there. And I learned about the president's plan to buy land in Fiji to mass migrate the entire population. Um, and in most recently, I went to Borneo to go and understand the the effect of forest fires on, on the orangutan population. And so these, and, and I have to acknowledge as well at this point, at this point that um, I've, <laughs> my carbon emissions have probably <laughs> single-handedly contributed to the climate crisis. And that's something that, and, it, my, and in a contradiction I'm working on as well, that, you know, it's, there's a horrible irony to flying around the world to report on climate change, which I realise. And, and this has happened over five years as well. This is one, you know, sort of something that all happened in yeah but these various trips have just helped me as a, as a filmmaker and a photographer understand these issues and understand the human issues and meet the people being affected and i think above anything else it's taught me that that climate change isn't just an environmental issue that it's really uh, an issue of human rights and, and social justice because it's those who have done the least to impact the climate who, yeah. are, who are suffering the most right um you know it's those in the global south who are suffering at the the um effect of our sort of carbon intensive lifestyles which is a horrible injustice well as you mentioned migration is probably one of the um consequences that is least spoken about totally but but when it even now like migration has such a huge effect on our our, you can see the effect that's having on our own political um, just the syrian refugee crisis which is yeah or like a million people yeah exactly and and even like immigration through europe let's say Mm. which isn't particularly it's political not environmental mm. but you know the effect that that has on our own standard of living as we can see now in our own political debate and dialogue you know the repercussions clearly are going to be vast globally yeah. um for, because these issues like you said they're human issues ultimately they're yeah. not environmental issues absolutely um and they're another thing that aren't spoken about so have you so you've consciously tried to use your platform and your work to to highlight these human 
um, consequences if you yeah, like yeah just to sort of communicate that human story in the hope that that um uh, just helps illustrate these issues because like, cause, like, you know I, like science doesn't come naturally to me you know so I sort of know firsthand how hard it is to to understand these issues and to sort of cut through all that jargon and so um, that was the, the the thinking was if I could sort of find the human stories the very base stories that we can all relate to that might help bring this issue alive um, and, and going on those journeys and, and seeing the reality of the effects of climate change is is ultimately what drove me towards activism you know because i have to be honest and say that it's left me feeling uh terrified you know i haven't sort of gone on these trips and thought like oh well it's, yeah it's a bad issue but we've probably got it under control yeah it's um it's it's devastating it's terrifying um and and i and i um i don't see anything more important right now than um activism than taking to the streets to to, to change the very system by which we live that is driving us into this crisis. You know, we've, we've known about this issue for 30 years, or fossil fuel companies have at least anyway, yeah. and they have consistently invested in, in uh, campaigns to confuse the public and to, to hide the information. And um, we're at a really key point in history right now, you know, with the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released this report last year. Um, it was very wi- widely publicized that we have 12 years, now 11, to, to radically transform all aspects of society if we want a chance at a habitable future. That's sort of summing up in a very brief way. But um, we have 12 years to, to limit temperature rise to no more than 1.5 degrees. Um, and so we have this like very, very small window in which to prevent a sort of devastating catastrophic climate change um and it's an insurmountable task um and i think that everyone with a platform has the responsibility to be talking about this issue uh, and to be taking out to the streets as well you know and we see every friday kids skipping school to, to protest this issue and i think there's a danger of being like oh that's great the kids are taking this issue on you know it's it's devastating the kids are the responsibility is falling on the shoulders of like 16 year olds to to tackle this issue and um i just think adults need to to back up their children and and follow suit you know and support them on the streets do you feel positive about the future uh i feel a mix (laughs) um it depends on the day you know um but i think i think what makes me feel positive is the the, the activism that we're seeing, this sort of fire um, that, that, that we're seeing. I went to a great talk last night by Naomi Klein and she talked about, um, you know, who wrote The Shock Doctrine and This Changes Everything and No Logo and these seminal books about capitalism, climate change. And she spoke about there being three fires right now, the sort of uh, fire of what's happening in our environment, uh, the fire of what's happening politically, which is obviously linked to this move towards right-wing popularism. But then this sort of third fire of like, activism this sort of sea change that we're seeing with the school strikes with extinction rebellion um and that's what gives me hope you know i think people absolutely are waking up and um we have a long way to go and i think that our my lifetime is going to be one of tremendous amounts of change you know that we can't even imagine um but we've got to give it a shot you know i think without hope um this sort of hatred fills that space you know hope combats all the hatred that we see in the world i think that's a result of of this crisis that's looming i mean that's why i asked the question really because this debate does unleash the ugliest side of human nature as well doesn't it really yeah like as we've kind of touched upon 
even to the point of mentioning a few individuals or whatever and mm. you know obviously you've been really eloquent in kind of putting the the other side of the case forward um publicly whether it's through media appearances or your own platform but it is it is a pretty vicious fight mm. you know like there's 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 a lot of unscrupulous arguments um out there so that's why i ask because it sometimes it can be it can feel like that you know you're fighting the worst of humanity in a way you know like even you know like the like say the the actual approach from the fossil fuel industry mm. to like increase production mm. in the face of this mm. i think i think what we need to do and i think we could do this better as, as a movement of extinction rebellion and we need a new narrative right so uh tackling climate change shouldn't be about people having to make these sort of sacrifices in their life it shouldn't be about um you know the most disadvantaged in society suffering this is an opportunity to create a new system that, that benefits everyone you know i think this is what excites me about the green new deal you know it's uh, which we're seeing talked about a lot in the states by uh, alexandra ocasio-cortez um, and it's now come over to the UK. There's labor for a Green New Deal is something yep. that's being spoken about a lot. And this idea of a Green New Deal is let's take this opportunity, this incredible time in, in, in history to totally reimagine yeah. our entire economy. It's a positive story. And the way we do things and tell a new positive story. Yeah. And I think until we successfully tell that story, the masses aren't going to get behind well, uh, this issue. I was going to ask you that because ultimately you need to capture center ground, don't you? you yeah. Know, like you've got the right wing elements that we've been talking about and then you've got the, the let's call it the left wing elements that perhaps is where we're positioned sure. but the middle ground is who you need to persuade and that's who your peers morgans are talking to and that's who your boris johnson's referring to extinction rebellion as crusties talking to and the middle ground is susceptible to those kind of dog whistle top line arguments and i do agree really you know i'm glad you brought that up because i do think when i look at it i think a simple positive message is is really essential isn't it to, totally. to, to win that middle ground which yeah. is what's ultimately going to win the argument unfortunately because that is what creates change when you get that you get that center opinion behind it isn't it like you've seen trivially you could say with single-use plastic mm. you know you've now got the daily mail like behind it because mm. it's become you know like a vote winner mm. essentially the government are behind it because mm. it's because they, they understand that that middle ground can get behind that issue yeah and i think we're seeing that with the environment you know i think uh, we've got an election coming up at some point soon in the, here in the uk and and it's absolutely going to be you know a mainstay issue and i think if extinction rebellion have achieved one thing i think it's you know uh hate, hate them or love them they've they've managed to get this issue to the to the forefront of public conversation you know i think it's considered to be the third most important issue for the british population you know, 70 percent of the population believe that climate change is the most important issue um don't quote me on those statistics but you know it's massively become an important issue for for, for at least the british population over the last year uh, and i think that you know that means we're going to see that reflected in, in our politics you know which is, is the only way we're going to start to see changes so if what would you say to people listening to this who that are on the fence or that are even inspired to take action but not too sure how they can you know help be sure. this positive movement like what what's a good what piece of advice would you give them yeah i mean i'd say obviously search out extinction rebellion there's local groups all across the uk and i think that something i see so often is people make an opinion of extinction rebellion perhaps because they've read it in a certain newspaper and then they come down to the events and every single time people are just blown away by the atmosphere at the events, you know, um, take the April rebellion, which was just two weeks in London. 
I mean, we, the people that were there, we had the best time of our lives. It was an amazing atmosphere. It was a celebration of life and, yeah. and community. And, and in many ways, Extinction Rebellion is sort of modeling the type of future that, that we'll need to see to get through this, get through what's coming, you know, which is coming together, community, uh, singing, uh, sharing food. Um, you know, I sort of think in that sense, rebellion is probably the wrong word. It doesn't really capture the, the, the atmosphere. Um, and so in that sense, you know, come down to one of these events and, and you can play whatever role it is that's comfortable to you. You certainly don't have to be arrested. You know, there are, whilst thousands have been arrested in the name of Extinction Rebellion, uh, tens of thousands have been there in the offices just sort of doing admin or like yeah. making placards or making food or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and uh, there's so much room to get involved. And I think that it just is an amazing feeling to come together uh, in this time as a community and realize there are other people who recognize the issue in the same way you do and are committed to, to building a better world. You know, it's, it's, you can't leave one of these events without feeling uplifted in some way. Um, and, you know, in a time where uh, religion isn't really a, a sort of mainstay anymore, I think many people are looking for this sort of purpose and this community um, and I think uh, Extinction Rebellion offers an element of that, you know, that, we're, that, we're, that we could probably all benefit from in this crazy age of being totally disconnected from one another, you know. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that's, you can see that's what a lot of people are getting out of this is the sense of community, basically. Mm. And, it's, and, and the empowering feeling of the fact you are doing something positive, which mm. is let's be honest really important mm. and it can be really overwhelming in this issue you know i think that's the other one well, what can i what can i do you know yeah. how, how can i make a difference and and i think it gives a way to make a difference even in just the smallest way coming down and maybe it's just supporting someone who's been arrested you know when i got out the the cell when i was arrested there were six people there you know just to sort of like like hey you're right you know offer support bit of food and then that makes all the difference you know so um all roles are massively important within the, the movement and what's next for you? What is next for me? Um, it's a good question. As I spoke about earlier, I'm sort of stopping uh, flying. I recognise that's some, a, a thing I need to change in my own life. And, yeah. and so it's that a feels big, like an importance. Big step yeah, for what you do, step. right? Yeah, personally. But, um, you know, it feels like there's so much going on here, uh, right on my doorstep. And that feels really exciting. So um, I'm just sort of committed to becoming a bigger part of that. Yeah. Um, and then we were speaking about just before we started this, I'm also going to start a podcast. Yeah. Because yeah. I just feel like the world doesn't have enough podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I recommend um, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I just, you know, through this process of getting much more involved in activism over the last year, I've m been lucky to meet so many really inspiring people who have just, um, change my view on the world and i'd love to just sit down and and talk to those people um uh, and that feels like something's very achievable so um yeah i'm going to be focusing my my time on that over the next few months great well thank you that was really great thanks so much for having me I really enjoyed yeah, it real thanks. Pleasure. so there you go that was my episode of type two with jack harry's i hope you enjoyed it gotta admit by the time our conversation had finished I had a little bit of a man crush on Jack, who as well as being young, talented and devilishly attractive is also completely charming and hospitable. Um, if you want to find out more about what he does, you can follow him on Instagram or check out his work over at www.jacksgap.com. Uh, there's some great work on there and you can find the films that we reference during our conversation. Thanks for listening. I'll be releasing new episodes of Type 2 every month or so. They will appear in my usual Looking Sideways channel, which you can subscribe to via Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify or your usual podcast purveyor. If it's your first time checking out what I do, make sure you get stuck into the back catalogue. There's over 100 episodes of interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports on there. Full show notes. It's all completely free, all completely free of adverts. Um, Not a square space in sight. I reckon you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening. And uh, hopefully I'll see you again. Nice one. (laughs) 